Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Fellas, uh, we got the, the tale of two bad sport. Well, two, two sports teams in this city. Uh, one of them really going places, it looks like. And the other one looks like it's hurtling to a terrible finish after what had been a really fun season. Uh, so we're going to start with the good news first. We're going to start with the Cowboys. Um, so when y'all watch that game uh, on Sunday, David, of course, you were there. Evan, did you get to watch any of the Cowboys game on Sunday? Yeah, I um, I had it on. We were uh, we had uh, our daughter over here. We were making dinner, so I was kind of in between. But I I watched them basically rinse and repeat with the Jets what they did with the Giants. They're the state champions of New York already. The state champions. I like that title. That's a good. One. Does that come with a trophy? Well, they've still got. I think they've still got to beat the Bills to be unanimous. But yeah, at this point in time, they would get a trophy, and I believe it's a shaped like the Statue of Liberty. I think Buffalo's practically in Canada. I don't think that really counts as the, as the state uh, of the, of New York. I don't. I don't. I don't count Buffalo. I'll be mentioning that to Jonah Heim this afternoon in the Rangers clubhouse. <laughs> Jonah Hive. While you're doing that, speak to him about his body language when he's up to, at the plate. I have never seen a guy who looks more disgusted with himself at the plate than he does. But anyway. I have. I have. Paul O'Neill was the guy. I used to. I used to tell Fraley every time the Rangers would play the Yankees, Paul O'Neill would come to the plate and he'd like he'd rip a double, and then the way he ran to second base was, damn it, I have to run again. Like he, he just never seemed happy about anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going the, whole, the whole effort and then he'd go like hit 350 yeah you know if, if, if is 350 i won't have a problem with it either uh, all right david uh so the cowboys have i think we can safely say raised the the bar of expectations mostly because of the way their defense is played you know the offense was better obviously against the jets and you know you, you score uh 30 points uh that's that is that is better uh and as they went along but they were just i believe what two of six in the red zone and showed some issues there but the defense once again just uh dismantled an offense uh it it is so much fun tim wrote about this and i thought the same thing uh when i was watching the game here at home uh was that you don't really even care what the offense does anymore. You're just watching to see what the defense does. You're watching to see what is Micah Parsons going to do on this play uh, and what is someone else going to do because of what Micah Parsons is doing on this play. It is just remarkable. I have not seen a player, a Cowboy, do this in forever. In my newsletter Monday, I wrote that he is the best Cowboy since at least Larry Allen. Um, and, I, and at some point, you know, he may inherit the title of Mr. Cowboy from Bob Lilly. I just don't know when I've ever seen a player on the Cowboys approach this level. Lawrence Taylor was this player, uh, and, and we've made those comparisons before about him. But I have to tell you, he uh, he looks just every bit as good to me as, as Lawrence Taylor did. He's doing all the things that he did. They, you line him up inside, you line him up over the center, you line him up outside, you line him up linebacker, and he just wreaks havoc wherever he goes. 
Yeah, I mean, he's uh, j- just a remarkable start. You know, we uh, during training camp, we were talking about how he was wrecking every practice. Uh, I mean, he was just on top of Dak Prescott immediately. Uh, just, you know, arguably the best left tackle of his generation uh, of, of the last decade was Tyron Smith. And Micah Parsons was just destroying him in practice daily and to the point where people are going, well, has Tyron Smith really lost it? Now you look in these first two games, I think he's given up one pressure and, and is back, uh, you know, not not in peak form, but still remains one of the top left tackles in the uh, league when healthy. Uh, so, yeah, Parsons has just carried that uh, into the regular season. And, and that's the thing. He's – you know, Dan Quinn has done such a, a wonderful job of moving him around. Now, Micah Parsons has a skill set in order to do that. Uh, so, I mean, you couldn't do one without the other. But, um, I mean, it's not unusual on, a, on a, you know, the three plays, which there have been a lot of three and outs early in this season, uh, that Micah Parsons is lined up in a different position on every single snap within the same possession. And... You know, it takes a, a, a level of, you know, we talk about his great individual talent and, and that's undeniable, but it takes a level of discipline and understanding of everyone else in order to make that work, right? Uh, because your, your, your gap responsibilities and all of that are different and you can still be gashed in the running game if you do that and put so much emphasis on that. But you look at how they shut down the running game. Uh, against the Jets when you knew and the Jets had to know the only way they had a chance to beat Dallas was to run the ball and run it right at them and and Dallas took that away early and then you know began feasting yeah I mean this is you know this start Dallas has allowed 10 points uh, in the first two games that's that's the lowest total by a Cowboys defense through the first two games of the season in 58 years Um, and, and you know, they, they're, this team led the league in turnovers in each of the last two seasons. Uh, no team in the league had done that since Pittsburgh. They're out front in that again this year. They're leading the lead in sacks right now. Uh, those seems, those stats seem to come in clusters, and you know they're going to revert to the norm a bit. But they're in a feeding frenzy at the moment, and with they have two offensively challenged teams still on the schedule immediately and Arizona, and New England, which has struggled offensively here as well. So I don't know that this is going to abate uh, anytime soon what we're seeing from the ferocity of this of this Cowboys defense. And very quickly, I, I know Evan is, Evan is chomping at the bit in order to jump in here. He has a, a salient point. Um, but for so often, you know, over the last couple of decades, we've talked about the offense being the, the driving force behind success for this franchise. And what was the mandate for the defense? Just don't be too much of a drag. Don't weigh your offense down too much. Um, look, this offense is too good to weigh down this team overall, but that formula has been flipped. I, I think looking at this team this season, uh, you have to look at the Dallas defense first when talking about whether or not they're going to win a game and then talk about how the offense fits into the equation. I don't, I don't think that, um, I I guess the question I've got Kevin based on what you just said in that introduction is I think maybe expectations have been raised a little bit for this team, but how much more could expectations be raised for this defense as great as Parsons is playing 
and I think he's playing just to the exact level that David talked about and that you talked about. My question is, did you not did we not think that this was one of the top three defenses in the NFL going into the season? I think that there was a yeah, sure, an expectation they would be that good, and mainly because of Micah Parsons and because of what they've done the last two years, right? They've they've, they've been building toward this. They've, they're leading the league in takeaways every year, you know. And when was the last time anybody done that back to back? And so, yes, there were expectations they did it, but it was still not a very good run defense. And so people felt like, well, there's there's a hole in it there, right? But I got to say this, David, and and you know I've taken my shots at Mike McCarthy, and uh, and because of things that have happened and the slow starts in previous seasons uh, and all of that, but and 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 he got a lot of criticism, not from me, but from a lot of national media when he said that you know that uh, Kellen Moore was just interested in lighting up the scoreboard, and I don't want to do that. We're just going to run the damn football, uh, and and so that that got a lot of attention. When he said all of that, and I don't, I don't know that Mike expressed himself perfectly when he made those comments and said those kind of things and what he wanted to do. I think we have seen so far exactly what he meant to do, and I think it has worked out perfectly. It is this when they talk about complimentary football, this is the the uh, perfectionist form of that because. By having the ball as much as they did, it kept the defense on the field for a short amount of time. What we saw last year was was Micah Parsons getting really worn down, right? And a lot of the other players on defense as well. Uh, well, if you're only out there on the field for 42 snaps, well, or, or, or fewer than that probably, well, that's, that's not going to be an issue. I mean, I can't remember. I think the offense had, what, 83 snaps? Was that it, David, somewhere yeah. in there? Yeah. You know, that's that's almost like a college brand of of football and offense that's not what you do in the nfl uh, typically so even though they were you know only two of six in the red zone and all the other issues about punching the ball across instead of just kicking field goals look they held the ball and that's what you want to do to me it's almost more important for them to be holding the ball than to be rolling up touchdowns and rolling up points and this is i think exactly what you know mike mccarthy was talking about their their offensive weapon yeah, for oh, sure. No question about it. And it plays to its strengths the less it's on the field because 100%. the less it's on the the less it's on the field means that the other team is having to drop back and pass because they're behind and take some chances that they wouldn't otherwise that they're out of their game plan. And and that's what the time of possession did. You know, Dallas held the ball for it was like 21 minutes more than the Jets in the first half. Just the first yeah. half alone they had that. And yeah, when, when you're tilting it like that, um, you're protecting your defense, which, look, every defense has to give up something, right? Uh, Dallas is built uh, for playmakers on the back end, lean, fast guys up front to get to the quarterback. So what do you lack? You lack some of that size and that girth and that anchor inside. Uh, you can still be physical, and they are a very physical defense, but you just don't have uh, that bulk where you're forcing teams to push you back with like brute strength, you know? And so that's where you get worn down. That can be your Achilles heel. If you expose it too often, how do you not expose it by an offense that has what? I think there were eight drives in that game with 12 or more snaps for Dallas. You know, we're, you know, everyone's saying the red zone and look, they were the first to say, we've got to get better in the red zone. This is, you know, this isn't going to work over the course of a season, 
but they had eight possessions with 12 or more snaps on offense. And uh, to sustain, and, and you're right, this defense has gotten off to fast starts, but because it's built for speed and is slightly undersized based on what it could be, it wears down over the course of the season. So now you're talking about how do you sustain this defense and still have it in peak form in December and January when you really need it versus what they're doing now. And you do that by leaving them on the field for 40 snaps a game versus 70 and 72. So there's still going to be games where that happens. Look, you're, you're, going, you're going to bounce up and down a little bit. But this is the template they want to follow. And you're exactly right. When he was talking about running the ball, he was talking about managing the clock. He was talking about time of possession. And they're still looking for big plays. But look also what they're doing here. I, th- I believe they've given up, what, one sack this season? Um, boy, they're getting rid of the ball quick, more three-step drops. Uh, th- you know, they're accepting, well, look, if we get the ball to C.D. Lamb on a slant, we can pick up some extra yards there. Uh, we don't have to throw it 20 yards down the field to get 20 yards. We can hit him right as he cuts on the slant at eight yards down the field, and he still may get 20. And he's had, I believe, what, five receptions of 20 or more yards this season in the first two games. Simply put, if you've got a balanced team, and this Cowboys team is a fairly balanced team, you want them equally as fresh on both sides of the ball. And that's what we're seeing them doing. And we can talk about red zone trips and all of that, but again, this is a team that has put, and I know there were two defensive touchdowns or a defensive touchdown, a special teams touchdown, but it's put 70 points on the board in the first two games. On yeah. a on a on, on the same level, this is what I have watched Georgia and Alabama do over the last decade on the college level is they wear people down with the run first on offense, their defense stays fresh, and at the end of games, they are the fresher team on the field, week in and week out. I know the college and the pro game is not exactly the same, but I think some of the principles exist here. I think what the Cowboys are doing is smart. I think it's good football. And I think it, it plays to all the strengths of this team. And the idea is not to maximize one unit over the other. The idea is to maximize your your total output, right? And I think they've done that in the first two games. Yeah, and, and it even goes to special teams too, right? I mean, like Brandon Aubrey, every kickoff this year has been a touchback. It hadn't been close to being returned. Well, you're saving the wear and tear on your special teams, and many of those guys are, are your depth on offense and defense at key spots, at the, at the skill spots. So, yeah, if it now look, it's only two games, and you don't want to be playing your best ball right now, right? <laughs> That's very difficult to sustain over the course of a season. So this is about consistency and sustaining where they are now. It's not going to go this the whole way. But while you're in, when you're in these moments, you need to manage your team because you know it's going to change down the road. And, and that's and I think that's what Mike McCarthy does a really good job at. And very quickly, we're talking about the run game. You know, and look, I, I think you can see in the red zone, they still, they do miss. They haven't found a true replacement for Ezekiel Elliott in the red zone. Those really, you know, tri- yards in traffic, uh, in clutter, where you need to move a pile, where you need to get two yards and, it, and it, there's nowhere for you to run. There are no holes. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott still excelled at that, even at this late stage of his career. And I think that contributes to some of what you saw in the red zone uh, in, in this Sunday game. But the other side of that is, now, how is Dallas compensating for that? Six different players carried the ball for Dallas in this game. 
five different players carried the ball for them in the opener. Cavante Turpin has gotten carries in each of these games. They ran Peyton Hendershot, which uh, Mike McCarthy admits he he had the wrong call. If he had he called it to the wrong side based on what the defense was, the safety shifted over. They felt Hendershot would have scored on that play, but but uh, McCarthy wound up calling it to the wrong side because of the adjustment that the safety made late. So uh, they're getting other people involved in the run game to reduce the wear and tear. Uh, across the board there on Pollard going forward, although his workload has been very, very high these first two games. But to your point about workload, and before I throw it right back to you, Kevin, the other point for me on balancing the workload and the management on both sides of the ball is when do you get soft tissue injuries? When do you when do you make yourself most vulnerable to those kinds of injuries when you're fatigued? And if you're able to keep everybody fairly fresh on both sides of the ball – you're not going to eliminate injuries, but you may reduce the the predisposition the predisposition to some de- some degree of soft tissue injuries or some degree of fatigue based injuries. I think it's just smart football all the way around. Well, thank you, Doctor Grant, for that analysis. I really like that. You know, predisposition to uh, soft tissue injuries. Wow, that was that was really good stuff. Uh, yeah, you're right. That, 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 but all of that is in going back to David's point. This was my one complaint about everything is that if, generally speaking, if you're built on defense and and uh, ball control, then you got a big back. You know that, that you yeah. you have to have a you have to have a big back who's pounding the ball. It's all about being physical, then, right? And uh, and that's what you that's what you want to do. To me, you pound away at teams, and and they're they're just not built to do that. I I, I think that is a flaw. It's a little bit like uh, you know Chris Young going into the uh, to the Rangers season with such a weak bullpen. It was a flaw. It was a fatal flaw for the Rangers going into this season, and it is is certainly turned into that this year i'm not, I'm not saying the same thing is going to happen with the cowboys the, the thing about the cowboys to me it's going to make uh the public believe in them is micah parsons the public does not believe or you know nationally does not believe in dak prescott it believes in micah parsons and when you when you watch him play you know what you're going to get every week uh that this guy is going to be terrific what is he going to do next uh i think he is starting you know, he was already in the conversation with Nick Bosa and, and, and you know, and other players in, uh, who are up for Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, but I, I think that he is far and away the leading uh, uh, candidate for that now. And we'll see where this career takes him. All right, that's going to do it for our Cowboys segment of the podcast. We're going to move over now and talk about those Rangers and, and uh, talk about another – debilitating loss uh, Monday against uh, the Red Sox. Just unbelievable to watch that game and to watch Will Smith come in. I, you know, my wife, my lovely wife is sitting there next to me on the, on the couch. And, and I'm trying to explain to her, even after all these years, not a, not a huge sports fan uh, that this guy simply cannot throw a fastball here. He cannot throw it. He has to throw his slider. And what does he do? He throws his fastball and gives up a two-run single that causes him to lose that game. Uh, so, Evan, uh, let, me, I, let me just ask you this to start with. Is there any remedy for this? Is there anything they could do? Is there anybody they could bring up? Is there anything else that Bruce Boshi has in mind 
because watching this play out now, someone wrote to me yesterday and said, I think maybe the best thing that can happen is that the Rangers don't make the playoffs because I couldn't bear to watch this in the postseason to see this become a national story about the Rangers' blown bullpen. Kevin, I, I mean, there's nothing – I don't think there's anything they can do. And quite frankly, I think they're in a position where they've started to even outthink themselves. Um, Will Smith should have thrown slider in that situation that you're talking about on Monday night. He shook off to the fastball. Why? Boston hadn't chased the slider in that inning. And he felt that with two strikes, he wasn't going to get Rob Snyder to chase a pitch out of the zone. He obviously didn't have enough confidence in himself to throw the slider in the zone in a place where he could get a ground ball. So what does he do? He shakes to the fastball. It's his third best pitch at this point in time. And left it in an area up in the zone, very hittable. On top of that, you know, Bruce Bochy had a situation with the eight, nine, and one hitters coming up in the eighth inning. All of them are right-handed. He had Chris Stratton up and he had Will Smith up. He went to Will Smith thinking, okay, the Red Sox, if I go to the if I go to a right-hander here, the Red Sox are going to run their left-handed hitters out there. Very well. But if you look at Stratton's numbers against left-handed hitters this year, even as a righty versus lefty, his numbers have played out really, really well. Now you may make some other subtle arguments there that because Stratton has thrown predominantly four-seam fastballs. Maybe his pitch mix isn't the best for the Red Sox matchup uh, in that situation. But I think this is a case of the Rangers being so far gone on their bullpen that they're just out thinking themselves in some situations as well, which just exacerbates the situation. So is there anything to do? Sure. I mean, they could bring up they could bring up any other number of relievers. I mean, at that point in time, you're if you haven't brought them up at this point, with twelve games left in the in the year, it's just desperation. You just it's it's a case of I can't bear to look at Jonathan Hernandez again, or I can't bear to look at Will Smith again. And listen, Will Smith has been a great teammate. He has contributed to this bullpen. I think if you were to say we're going to sit him down, you do as much damage as you would positive if you bring where if you bring up Chase Lee or somebody like that. I'm not sure that that's going to make a significant difference in the bullpen right now. It is just clear that this bullpen is it's not even a, a it's not even a fatal flaw. I mean, it's a gaping hole in this team. It is it is a scuttling type of hole that has been there all year and no matter what the Rangers have tried to do to address it, it has not worked. And I think that just goes to that just goes to show, you know, if we're going to critique Chris Young here, he did a great job of trying to prepare for as many starting pitching contingencies as he could possibly face, and he still faced more than you could possibly face more. Yeah, <laughs> but you've got to have bullpen options, and if you don't have bullpen options, it's going to create it's going it, to it's that same. We just talked about this concept of balance on 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 the on the football side, right? The bullpen and the starting rotation work in balance too. If one has to work more than the other, it throws both out of, out of alignment. And this bullpen has had to work a lot lately. It's been a weak, it's been a weak element of this team. 
And I just don't know that there are solutions for it. So the the most startling number I've seen in a long time uh, was the one, I guess, in your story today that, that of the last 16 appearances. Three for 16. Three for 16. So three saves in 16 opportunities. They have thir- They are saving games at a 20% rate over the last five weeks. It's astounding. I mean, I could not come up with another word other than to say astounding. And I think I've used it five times in print and in, in tweets since that point. I couldn't believe I walked over to the PR department when I saw that in the game notes to double check it. And they double checked it for me just because it, it just it's so unreal. And and for the season, aren't they in the low forties or something, which is the worst? They are now at forty six point five percent, which oh, would be the worst save percentage in history. Well, since the save became an official stat in nineteen ninety nine for any team that amassed at least twenty five saves in a season. And let me just say this about saves. The issue with saves always has been, well, this is a little bit bogus. You know, a guy comes in in the ninth inning and there's nobody on base. And and so he gets a save for something that's really, okay, he got three guys out, but it really wasn't that dangerous. And so it's a yeah, little bit bogus when you see this. <laughs> yes. That's just, that's what makes it even worse is that really the, the value of, of a bullpen has always been a little bit inflated because of those things. When you see guys' numbers and you go, oh, wow, this guy's really effective. It's like, well, let's take and into you, consideration everything that happens took a here. Certain, you took a certain level of performance for granted, too, with saves, right? Sure. Like you said, you just come in. This is this is a perfunctory. They have enough of a lead. Just get three outs here. Even if they, you know, even if they give up a run, so what? But suddenly, when now you can't even count on that, uh, I mean, something it, you took for granted. Yeah, the bullpen, the, the bullpen save percentage was kind of like the SAT. You know, you got sixty percent simply for, for just running your name. somebody out there. You, <laughs> you know, you oh, you started at sixty percent save conversion rate. <laughs> the fact that the Rangers are running almost twenty percent behind that. Is I, I I cannot I cannot imagine what is going through Chris Young's mind um, based on all the money that they that this team has sunk into this club and and on how many levels they are performing really well. Corey Seager is performing at an MVP caliber level. Marcus Simeon is posting up and is going to play 162 games. Um, Evan Carter looks like the real deal. Josh Young was the rookie of the year leading candidate before he got hurt. All these different levels are going well for the Rangers, and this bullpen has just sucked them into a whirlpool of – what's the right word, Kevin? You're the word master. <laughs> just a morass. I, <laughs> I got to tell you, the, the thing about this that is so unfortunate is that no one's going to look back on this season and, and think, golly, they sent six guys to the all-star team and, and look at how many wins they improved over the previous years, you know, and, and, and look at the production they got from these guys. And Josh Young should have been, an all, you know, the, the uh, you know rookie of the year. And, and Corey Seager should have been the uh, MVP if it hadn't been for Shohei Otani. They won't think about any of that. They will just think, my God, that was the ugliest bullpen in the history of baseball. That's the way this this season will be remembered always, it, and and because you know it, it kind of went back to that thing, and when we talked about it earlier in the years, and you you guys both said, well, you can't fix everything, and I said, well, 
I, I know you can't fix everything, but boy, this bullpen really does not look good. You can't and, ignore and, something either. You can't fix everything, but you can't ignore something. No, that was a mistake at the at the trade deadline too. I don't know, you know, that, that David Robertson has, hasn't done that well, you know, down in Florida. But uh, you know, when they made the trade for Max Scherzer, they didn't get a, another. You know, it seems to me they could have at least done that in the deal. I, I still think baseball's rules are terrible when in the on the waiver wire. I, and I didn't really know this. Apparently, when it comes up your turn uh, on making a claim, you can claim as many players as you want, you know? Yes. And it seems like you should be able to claim one guy, and then you move on to the next team, and then they get to claim a guy if they want it. And so Cleveland takes three pitchers who just, you know, decimated the Rangers in that series. Lucas Giolito, you know, gets 12 strikeouts and pitches like everybody thought he was going to be all year long. And they get a couple of relievers out of Matt Moore. That was another thing, you know, uh, Chris did not resign Matt Moore. We had a really good year for the angels and who shut down the Rangers, you know, over the weekend. Uh, It's it just like everything is played against them. Then you're, you watch the game last night and who comes in at the end of the game, you know, for the Red Sox, Chris Martin, you know, former, former Ranger. <laughs> Arlington zone, you know, former Ranger. It's like, Everywhere you look, there's a pitcher that the Rangers either had or maybe could have had who's pitching great. And meanwhile, it looks like you're you're rolling up the, the junior varsity out there when you go to the bullpen. And I will say this, you know, I don't know that any of these guys that they that they have jettisoned over the course of this year are going to end up becoming stellar relievers, right? But at some point in time, I do think that Glenn Otto is going to put together a capable big league season for somebody. I think that, that Taylor Hearn may put together a capable big league season for somebody, uh, maybe even Spencer Howard. And and that is that is the hard game that you play when you are a GM of trying to, you know, make sure you protect your resources as long as you possibly can and give them as many shots as you possibly can versus, hey, we've got a chance to win here. We need to we need to marshal all, all our all our abilities to to go out and win, and they've tried to go all in this year, and they may have, you know, they may have traded away the best starting pitching prospect that they've had in quite some time to do it. Um, it, it it's this is the hard part about baseball, and this is one thing I don't think that John Daniels ever got enough credit for. And quite frankly, I criticized him, and I've, I've told him about that. I've criticized him that. You know, I always thought he didn't pay enough attention to going out and spending money on free agent relievers. I think they did that one time with Joe Nathan, and I think afterwards their evaluations were, you can find relievers over the course of the season. And to John's credit, he did. I don't think the Rangers went and did enough for their – they went and got two starting pitchers at the at the trade deadline. And their thought was, we're going to get some other guy. when we get some other guys back, we'll move other guys to the bullpen. It just hasn't worked out. If you want to fix the bullpen, sometimes you just have to fix the bullpen. Stratton has been a good addition. The Rangers needed at least, at least one more bullpen arm at the deadline, and they didn't get it, and it has continued to just be an, an issue for this club. Yeah, and what I'm hearing, too, you, you, you know, from fans all the time, is who because they see Will Smith fail enough, you know, it, it, when he was succeeding, it was, it was all smoke and mirrors, you know? And so, and I, and listen, he's a great guy and he's a great teammate and all the things you said are right. And you feel bad for him. I feel bad when the camera pans to him in the dugout and he's slamming the back of the bench with his fist, 
you know, and I, and I'm just, you know, I, I feel, I feel bad for the guy, but what he's done this year, just been amazing. I'm, I'm sure in, in some ways when he's out there pitching, knowing he cannot throw his fastball that, that he feels like I'm just going to, I'm out here. I can get killed out here. It's it's that being naked. It's reliever, you know, pitchers call it feeling naked on the mound, you know, and, and, and and I imagine that's where he was last night, knowing that he couldn't get Boston to chase that slider. He really had no choices whatsoever. And he thought, may, you know, the worst number of, of the lowest number of bad things that can happen will happen if I throw a strike and he puts the ball in play. Maybe we get a double play and we get out of the inning. Um it's just hard to be out there without weapons. And that's been, I mean, that had been my concern when Smith was closing for the Rangers was didn't have enough swing and miss ability and didn't have the ability to overpower a hitter here or there with a fastball. Um, But the Rangers have given opportunities to virtually everybody in their bullpen and nobody, nobody has taken it and run with it all season. Nobody has had a consistent year in the bullpen. That's the amazing thing is usually somebody has a year. Nobody has had a year out there. I say the, the thing about the Rangers that I see this year is you, you feel like this team feeds off whatever energy there is. If there's a lot of energy and the lineup is going well, well, then everybody's rolling. If there's if if they're not hitting well, well, then everybody's just flat. And it's the same in the bullpen. If the bullpen does get up and get going a little bit, well, then it's then it's going well, and they feel pretty good about it. And as soon as something starts to go wrong, everybody flattens with it. It it just feels like that this team can't can't rise above situations. It, it feels like they are really good at rolling, you know, and it, it, they just they ride that roller coaster when it when it's going, you know, and it's going great. That everything is great, and it just like the you know to me, the the whole season was a, a microcosm of it was the four game sweep of Toronto, a, re- a really good team in Toronto sweeping them. That shows you what the Rangers are at their best, and then they come right back with the three game set against Cleveland, a not very good team, and and they just do everything wrong in that series. It's like how in seven games can you get both ends of the Rangers season? I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable to watch this kind of thing happen in a microcosm. And I think that's what's going to be the the final take on on the Rangers to me, no, no matter what happens from here on out. And they may still make the playoffs. Uh, I, I can certainly see that happening. Before we get out of this, happen. I mean, we need to address, right? They've got a best of seven that's going to determine whether or not they make the playoffs. They've got seven of their final ten games against Seattle. As of right now, they are tied in the standings with Seattle for the final wild card spot. They lead that tiebreaker going into that seven-game stretch. That's going to determine whether or not the Rangers go to the playoffs. That that and, and they still could be. And to all their goals this season, the whole idea was to be playing meaningful games in September. And they are. Every game is is vitally important at this point. But to your point, Kevin, I do think that there has come a time I can't I can't put my finger on when it happened. But I do feel like the bullpen is a is an emotional fulcrum for every team. And you get to a point where you feel like you can't trust your bullpen to protect something. And it puts more pressure on the starters to try and go deep. It puts more pressure on the offense to put up runs. And I think what you end up seeing is you see guys trying to do – I hate the phrase trying to do too much, 
but you Pressing. see guys taking bigger swings. You you see guys expanding their strike zone, trying to do things with pitches they shouldn't be able to. And then what happens? Then the offense starts to pancake a little bit. And that, I think, is where this team, unfortunately, is at this moment. And it, it it's a hard thing to get out of, especially with a dozen games left. Yeah, no question about that. All right, that's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. Uh, we want to get in a little bit of college talk before we get out of here. Uh, SMU and TCU play this week in the old iron skillet. Um, you know, I don't know that anybody really cares about that trophy anymore. And uh, I don't think that TCU cares anymore about playing SMU. Um, what, so, what, tell, what says that to you, Kevin? Why do you think that? Why do they want to play it? Well, it's just that it's the same old thing, right? It's, it was the thing that led to the dissolution of the Southwest Conference in the first place. You know, even before it, it, it fell apart, I knew that it was destined to do that because you, you can't have all these schools in one state in the same league playing each other. And then when, once you're not in the same league anymore, then you don't want to play those things. You, you can go across the country and look around. No one wants to play the second school in that state because – the the big school, the flagship, uh, you know, institution. There's nothing to win in that deal. If you beat that team that's not as you know successful as you long term or has as much money as you do, well, then you know you didn't really do anything. You were supposed to beat them, and if you lose to them, oh my gosh, you've given them credibility now. So that's why you see that across the board. And in, and in this area, because SMU was not in a Power Five conference, and TCU is. There was nothing to, for TCU to gain from that. And, of course, the fact that SMU beat TCU, uh, has beaten them, uh, has, has proven they can do that, uh, that's that's not a winning proposition for TCU. Now, that's all been changed by the fact that pretty soon SMU is going to be joining the ACC, uh, which is pretty phenomenal. And and uh, we saw that the, the news item recently in which the SMU revealed that in one week after the announcement that they were joining the ACC, uh, the athletic coffers had received $100 million, which I guess that's all the money that they used to pay to the kids uh, to play football, and they're just now giving it straight to the school instead of giving it to them. I don't know. What do you think? I I was going to say, look, the Pony Express was ahead of its time. <laughs> Oh well, yeah, it was. You know, they 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 were ahead of their time. Yeah, if all this happened now, no one would have said anything. Yes, you wouldn't have got, had gotten the death penalty, and everything would have been just fine. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, when I was out there for the for the day of the announcement, I talked to several of, of their uh, bigger boosters, people who have their names on buildings, uh, that that sort of thing, and uh, obviously they were all very excited about you know what had happened. I was told that that one of their big name boosters, a very big name in this city, had at one point, and was the reason why they were so excited about joining the ACC, had looked at the football schedule and said to someone else who was telling me this story, have you ever seen a worse football schedule in your life? You know, meaning, you know, playing in the American Athletic Conference. And, and that's the deal. You know, SMU is a prime example of a school in a town where if you're not playing in the big leagues we don't care you know we simply don't care and so they're that you know the 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 aac is not the big leagues and that and smu fans know that when they see these teams roll in here you know eastern carolina whatever any 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 one of those schools you want to talk about pretty much they just don't care about them uh but you look at the acc they were so pumped about that 
they were so pumped about it, you know, from not only from a football sense, but uh, especially from a basketball sense. You're talking about the storied programs of college basketball. They're going to be rolling in over there on the campus now. So there, there are a lot of things that those people are very excited about, and they're willing to put money up for. Because you know, as as we know, and as the uh, president at SMU told me, it was going to be in the neighborhood of nine years that they were not going to be accepting or be able to get any money from the league, from the ACC uh, and, the, and the media revenues, which is, by my estimation, come to about, oh, I don't know, $360 million they were forfeiting. Uh, hey, I wonder, so they just came up with $100 million of it in one week. Was there any talk when you were out there about, since they're going to go to the ACC, the possibility of restarting baseball there? Well, actually, there was the conversation. I Several people came up to me and, and brought that up uh, and said, listen, you know, uh, SMU is the, will be the only school in the ACC that doesn't have a men's and women track program and doesn't have a baseball program. Of course, they haven't had a baseball program in forever, right? That was abandoned in the 80s, uh, in the early 80s, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, th- there was some talk about that. But the problem with it is, is that, okay, you're not getting any money, right? from the ACC for nine years. So, and now we're going to start a baseball program or, or we're going to, and you don't even have a place on campus to build a, a baseball stadium, you know, so you'd have to play off campus. I mean, look, SMU can do that. I mean, but it's going to cost an awful lot of money to start something like that up and to get it up to speed and, and to have the kind of facilities that everybody else has in college baseball. Now it's not like you just, you know, draw up a diamond here and put some bleachers up. You know, everybody now has what looks like, you know, a minor league ballpark. So to do that is going to cost an awful lot of money. It would cost you less money, I guess, to run a track program. I would assume, you know, uh, and we'll see if they would get that back. Um, but yes, there was some sentiment for that, that people wanted it. I brought it up. I asked in conversations with uh, Gerald Turner, the president, uh, and there was some sentiment that, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. And I like that. I didn't get the impression that it was anything that's going to happen anytime soon. I, I, I'm thinking that that was going to happen, uh, a, a baseball program or a, a men's and women's track and field program. And there's the Title IX issues, right? If you if you put if you get, if you add a baseball program, well, then you're going to have to add a softball program, you know. And I, I got I got to tell you right now, I don't even know if SMU has a women uh, has a softball program. I don't think so. But anyway, I would say that's all ten years down the road. That'd be my guess. Okay, can so, we talk about Dion now? Evan is dying to talk about Dion Sanders, uh, who is his favorite coach ever in college football. Uh, he's been a he's been a coach in college football now for what two years? And, he's the face uh, of college football, Kevin. He's the as Evan has, has made repeatedly makes the, the the case that he is. Well, certainly is if you watch television and you're just yes. if you want to buy something. You know, if you're if you're if you're a fan of commercials, Dion's on every other commercial these days. So it's him and the pillow guy. You know, the, those are the two the two the you know, places of of, of uh, goods. You know, next thing you know, we'll be seeing Dion, uh, you know, walking up to the White House and, and getting access just like the pillow guy does. So uh, yeah, I mean, he is he is he was on sixty minutes, right? Uh, they really grilled him. They got right to the bottom of everything uh, in that story. Uh, I, I I did think it was interesting that, and then my latest thing I read about Dion is that when he accosted Ed Warder in the press conference and, and kept asking Ed if he believed and all the rest of that, that. Ed did say that maybe Dion had seen a tweet in which 
uh, Ed had called Dion a celebrity coach. Now, I don't know that that's, that's technically, you know, an insult to call him a celebrity coach. He is a celebrity coach. You know, he's a coach and he's a celebrity. There's no question about either one of those issues. Uh, I guess if you put them both together, celebrity coach, maybe that people would assume that that means that you don't know what you're doing. Uh, clearly, Dion does know what he's doing. Uh, I've had someone just told me a story about him the other day that I thought was very interesting uh, about. And this was several years ago, actually. And Dion was you know, not into coaching yet, but was interested in it. And obviously was talking about wanting to do it. And he'd gone in to talk to Hal Mummy who, as we know, is the creator of the air raid offense, along with Mike Leach, and they perfected it. Uh, and uh, he he wanted to know, and, and one of Dion's sons, his oldest son, was playing uh, for Hal Mummy. And he, uh, he said, listen, I hear you're the guy I need to talk to about offense. And they sat and they talked for about a, an hour and a half, and Dion asked all the right questions and really wanted to know what what to do and when to do it and how to do it and all of that. And then when the conversation was over, he said, oh, by the way, uh, if my son uh, gives you any trouble, uh, kick him in the butt and send him home to me and I'll take care of it. So so Dion is is a, there's a lot about Dion that is uh, that people don't like. I got to tell you, after I wrote my column on the Colorado game uh, in which Dion kind of went off in the press conference and, and in my mind, detracted from all the great things they had done during the game. It was just a tremendous performance by Colorado and by his son Shadur and by Travis Hunter, both who at the time were Heisman Trophy candidates. Unfortunately now, Travis Hunter is going to be out for several weeks after that cheap shot in the uh, game against Colorado State, which was really unfortunate. Henry Blackburn, the safety, hitting about five minutes after the play was over. And now Henry Blackburn is getting death threats. So this just tells you where we are in our country that this kind of stuff happens. But in any case, uh, I thought that was all unfortunate uh, that 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 all that happened. But uh, but but Dion has uh, he, he has reached such a level here in what he's done at Colorado. Uh, it is phenomenal. And I do think that that sometimes uh, it's, it's easy to be, to be distracted by a lot of the stuff that Dion does and says and, and not see, you know, the stuff that is good and what he's doing and how he's playing and what he's doing with his team. Uh, you know, I guess I'm just, a, I'm a little bit old school. I like it when people are, you know, are humble and, and say, say all the right things and do all the right things. I don't mind them having fun and doing fun things and all that. I don't have any problem with that at all. It's just that, you know, when you got the, you're handing out sunglasses to your players because, you know, Jay Norvell said it when I, you know, made the, which was a stupid comment for him to make before the game last week against Colorado State, and said that when I when I speak to adults, I take off my sunglasses and take off my hat. You know, well that was a little that was a little much, and then Dion uh, rolled with that too. So, but everything he does is uh, is drawing attention, and everything he's done is is uh, uh, making him as as Evan calls him the face of college football. Hey, in this Kevin, in this day and age of NIL and the transfer portal. Um, and trying to, if you're trying to build a program from a one-win program, you've got to have a guy who's willing to be out front, who's willing to go get, make headlines however he needs to do it. And I, I think Dion is perfectly suited for that. Um, underneath all that, I, I, he, underneath all that, I think Dion is whatever any other college football coach may be. He is about winning. <laughs> 
And uh, quite frankly, I'm tired of college football coaches who have said for years and years, you know, we're going to make young men and we're going to get them educated and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And stuff that's going on in their program is just horrible. Um, We can go back to Joe Paterno as far as that goes. And what Dion is trying to do is put together a winning program. It's that simple. It makes him no different from any other college football coach. If he does it in a more colorful way, for me, in a lot of ways, the comp that I have is Barry Switzer. Back in the 70s and early 80s, I didn't like Barry Switzer because he was so outspoken and so much of a gunslinger and all of that. I feel like I learned my lesson. He did treat his players well. He did care about his players. Underneath everything else, Barry was a very caring guy where his players were concerned, was he not? Sure. But you're not asking me if I don't like Barry Switzer. I mean, yeah, no. I like Barry Switzer too. But, but, but Barry Switzer's program got out of control, and then he ended up paying the price for that. But so, almost all these programs well, – I think what I'm saying is almost all these programs at some level have control issues. It's hard to control 90 90- – to a hundred college college athletes. See, yeah, I, I think I think Dion. Yeah, I think Dion is more of a of an old school coach and approach than his veneer portrays. Uh, I do think he's very traditional in his coaching. The story you told about look, if my son gives you any trouble, kick him in the butt and send him home to me. He's about accountability. I would argue he's about accountability in a way more than Barry Switzer was. I, I think you can argue that he's more of an old school coach than Barry Switzer, but he certainly doesn't come across that way, uh, you know, with, with the braggadocio and, and, the, and the veneer. But I would say the coaching principles, uh, I, I think those, from what I can tell from talking to people, are pretty sound. Oh, I think that they are too. Well, you can't. I mean, look, the guy Sean Lewis, the the, the offensive coordinator, he brought from Kent State. Uh, I heard yeah. a lot of good things about him. He yeah. was a really rising star, and so Dion knew that, right? Uh-huh. So Dion went sure. and got him. You know, so he he went and got good coaches. Uh, Tim Brewster is a was a longtime coach here in Texas and coached the Texas programs, uh, and uh, and so he went out and got Tim Brewster. You know, he Dion's really smart about all that kind of stuff, yes. and he 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 is want to do that. Not. Listen, there have been I, I know too much about Dion and the things he did like at Prime Academy and that kind of stuff. And that was a that was a disaster here in, in the Dallas area, right? And so uh, I, I those are the kind of things that bothered me about Dion and his history. I, I I'm 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 gonna question Dion's long term commitment to Colorado. Uh you know, he, he has a tendency to, to move in and out of stuff. He was at Jackson State for one year, you know. Uh, you know, and talked a lot about HBCUs and what he was going to do for them. And then he was out. So, yeah, I mean, talk to some of those HBCUs and, and see what they're, what they're feeling about all that is. That's no different from any other coach who moves on and goes on and does other things. I just don't want to hear about what I'm doing to, to help mankind when you're a football coach, right? And, and, and we, we know what to come to expect from football coaches, which is very little other than just to do whatever they can do to, to win football games and to make themselves richer. And that's, and that's what they do. So I, I'll, we'll see how it all goes. I, I listen, I was blown away by their game against TCU. Uh, I, I thought that they were, they, they played a phenomenal game and, uh, and they played very well since. And now they've struggled a little bit uh, against Colorado state, which is 
not uh, is a program not nearly as good as Colorado. So uh, we'll see where they go for. And if they hadn't had, I mean, Jay Norvell, they had Colorado State had 180 yards worth of penalties in that game. Yeah, just unbelievable. It's like at some point Jay's got to go out and say, "Hey guys, knock it off." You know what are we doing here? We're killing ourselves. They would have won that game if it hadn't been for all of that. So we'll see how they do against Oregon. Look, look, it that shouldn't be any kind of you know referendum on on Colorado football if they if they get killed by Oregon. You know they they went one and eleven last year. Oregon's a really good program. It's a top ten program, so they shouldn't beat Oregon. They if they beat them. Well, then then Evan. Evans thing about it, Dion being the face of college football, that might actually be right then uh, if he if he pulls that off. Beating TCU, as it turns out, is probably not that big a deal. Uh, you know, beating Colorado State is really not that big a deal, probably either. It's it's nice for a program only won one game. If he if he beats or at least plays well against Oregon, well then that'll that'll be a big deal, uh, and and uh, and they'll maybe have something really going on then. And my my argument here is not in any way, shape, or form that Colorado is a top ten program or that they will end up as a top 10 program this year. And I, it has nothing to do with that. I just feel like in terms of, of being a football coach for a major university, Dion deserves as much credit as any other first year coach who's doing, whose team has won its first three games. You know? Well, sure. There's no, no, there's no question about that. As I said, and I said in the column I wrote after TCU, I got no complaints about what Dion's doing on the field and doing with his team. They're doing a phenomenal job. Uh, I, I want him to do things. I, I guess what 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 soured me so much on the whole situation. I mean, you just had to be sitting there in the press conference and see these two, see these kids come in, and and they're not talking about you know being good at football. I guess it's a little bit like the Jimmy Johnson days at Miami, right? Look. That, that was an unbelievable program. Then they're getting off the bus in fatigues, you know, and stuff. It's like, what, what are we doing here? I mean, what is this? You're, you're not going to war. You're a college football team. Can't you just enjoy that and have fun with that instead of trying to make yourself into something else? I think maybe we look back on that. We think it's, it was, you know, back then it was considered like, wow, it's out of control here. And maybe in some ways they were a little out of control in Miami, and that's and that's what happened in Oklahoma too. As a matter of fact, if we're going to bring up comparisons, that's that's what you're you're talking about, right? And what programs ended up out of control? I'm not saying that's going to happen at Colorado. I don't I don't have that. I don't know that at all that that will happen. But it just feels like sometimes when you head down these roads, uh, you know, Evan, you you did say that you know whatever a coach has to do to draw attention is. I'm always an, I'm always nervous about that. I don't want to say whatever you have to do to draw attention to yourself. I, I don't. I don't. There's a there's a bad way to draw attention to yourself and what you're doing. And then, the, then of course, the other side of all of this is that, that look look what's happened up at, at Michigan State now. Mel Tucker, you know, getting fired for that. Uh, you're right. There is all kinds of uh, hypocrisy, and 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 I'm 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 up to my eyeballs with coaches, you know, and in college football. I, I agree with them. They're they're all just apoplectic about what's happened with NIL and the transfer portal. And I'm right there with them. It's all just really crazy. But you know what? They did this to themselves. Uh, you know, you can't make yep. five, seven, nine, ten million dollars a year off the backs of these kids and expect them to to to, to exist. On oh well, but you get a scholarship that's worth a lot of money, and we're and we're feeding you. And look at all the great things you get out of this. Yeah, and look at look at ten years from now and fifteen years from now, and you end up with uh, all these uh, physical problems that you have, and maybe even mental problems that you have because of what you played college football. Meanwhile, uh, my head coach got rich, you know, and then he and then if he got a job someplace else, he he took he he left that job, 
and it went someplace else. Whereas I can't leave and be eligible the next year. You know, all of these things are stuff that I've written about over the years. They're just mind boggling about college football. And I, and, and I still really like it. But I got to tell you, I don't like it as much as I used to. I, I go to these games now and I, I used to go to them and it was just fun. It just it just felt like it was it was something that was really fun. I don't consider all this stuff anymore so much fun. It's just it's just too much. You know, uh, one of those storylines in Tuscaloosa was that there were so many fans there from Texas flying in in their private jets. They had to redirect them to another town. They couldn't they couldn't all land at the Tuscaloosa airport. So they were having to land at airports, um, you know, an hour and a half away. And and I just think I, I don't know. There's something about all of this. It just feels like uh, it, it's just uh, it's too big for an old uh, redneck from Houston like me. I hear you. I think that's a good that's a good point to end. <laughs> yeah. Redneck right there. That's an ender. And and next week on our podcast, old man yelling at clouds, we will talk yeah, about that's it. That's me. That's me, an old man yelling at clouds. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh well, you know, don't don't tell them where it all goes next. But you know what? When it all goes to hell, David, I won't have to write about it because I'll be gone. <laughs> and you can say. I told you so. I told you so. Oh, well. All right. All right. That's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank everybody for coming in and listening and, and sitting through all of this. But if you made it all the way into this podcast, we may have to give you something. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. For that. Sunglasses. Uh, Kevin's going to buy sunglasses. Sunglasses for, sunglasses for everyone for who's tucked to the end. Yeah. Listen, Dion would have loved Hayden Fry coaching with his sunglasses on. He would have yeah. loved that. Hayden warm everywhere. Uh, So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.